My godmother was born in 1915 and lived to be 94 years old. Before she died in 2009, the last president she ever voted for was Barack Obama. For me, that was symbolic. As a young woman in rural Alabama during the 1940s, my Aunt Lola faced unfriendly volunteers at the polls who administered reading tests to her when she arrived to vote, questioning her literacy and competency. They didn't want my godmother to exercise her right as an American citizen. She found the experience humiliating, yet the resistance she faced made her even more determined to vote. She said to me, if they were trying that hard to discourage me, then I knew it must be important. Aunt Lola eventually moved to Washington, D.C., and always believed in the importance of the political process. I can't give Aunt Lola a ride to the polls anymore or take her to lunch afterward and listen to her fascinating stories. But on November 3rd, I'll be thinking about her, and I'll definitely be voting. Welcome to Black in the NFL. I'm your host, Clifton Brown. Today's episode is player politics. In this episode, we will talk about how Black NFL players of past and present interact with politics and how the political system has treated them and their communities, particularly when it comes to voting. We'll hear from four guests who are politically active, all-pro left tackle Ronnie Stanley, former Ravens wide receiver Tory Smith, Dr. Gloria Brown Marshall, and author, playwright, and professor at John Jay College in Manhattan, and Tracy Odie Blunt, the NFL's senior vice president of corporate communications and leader of the NFL Votes Initiative. Only 60% of eligible Americans voted in 2016, and the NFL is challenging us to do better in 2020. For the first time in league history, all NFL offices, NFLPA offices, and team facilities will be closed on Election Day to ensure that every member of the NFL family has an opportunity to vote. More players are making sure their vote counts. Super Bowl MVP Patrick Mahomes shared an interesting story with his Kansas City Chiefs teammates in August, explaining how his voter registration was mishandled during the offseason. Over this offseason, everything happened, and I wanted to make sure I was registered to vote. Uh, I did everything the right way. I made sure to uh, fill out everything, fill out the whole paperwork exactly how it said, went and mailed it in. Uh, and then yesterday, before this meeting, I went and looked to make sure I was registered to vote. I looked, it said I wasn't registered, and they canceled it and didn't tell me. So that just shows a little way of if I wasn't having this meeting, I would have never noticed that I wasn't registered to vote. It's something that we believe that as leaders in the community that we are, that we all should be registered to vote. The election is only days away. Both sides of the aisle are billing it as the most important election in U.S. history. And yet, more than 100 million eligible Americans will not vote. This year, the NFL and its players are taking more action to combat voter suppression and apathy. Just listen to former Ravens wide receiver Tory Smith, 
a player who interned in politics early in his NFL career. When someone says to you now, and I'm sure they do, you know, I don't think my vote is that important. I'm not sure if I'm going to vote. I'm not voting. It's just one vote. How do you respond to that? I'm offended by it, especially uh, when it's a person of color that feels that way. Because I actually went to the Virginia Library of History, or Virginia Library, they had this history record, and they track, and they actually traced my ancestors. So uh, my family on both sides comes from slavery. I'm in Virginia. And I was able to see that one of my family members was recently freed, and they registered to vote. Wow. And so the fact that they registered to vote back then, when there were so many barriers, there was poll taxes, you know, trying to force people who were poor, who didn't have money to pay to vote for the opportunity to vote. There were literacy tests. Right. Make sure that an individual could read. Well, you were just a slave. You weren't, it was illegal for you to learn to read. <laughs> so we're going to make you have to read to vote. Right. right? There were so right. many barriers that were put in place. And to know that, again, you hear it, you're taught it, your ancestors this, your ancestors that. And I actually see it. It was like, man, that's so disrespectful to everyone who literally fought and people died. And I'm not even talking about military right now. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You, you people have been fighting and dying for America for a long time. People of color have been fighting and dying for America for a long time, but they haven't been treated the way they should. Mm-hmm. And I know voting is key. Like, looking at John Lewis. John Lewis just passed away. And he was a, a warrior, a superhero during the time. Absolutely. So we could vote. Beat him within an inch of his life. He just passed away. Right. This isn't that long ago. Even understanding the numbers and how the system works, like your vote matters, man. Even if, they, even if you don't care, you have to vote. People fought for it, and it does matter numerically, too. Even though we have this system with the Electoral College, your vote still matters. Yes. And as always, if your vote didn't matter, people would not try to take it away. We'll return to my conversation with Tori later in this episode. But let's first look at the history of Blacks voting in this country. For that, we'll go to a leading scholar on this issue, Dr. Gloria Brown Marshall. I wanted to start with you, Gloria, with this. In your opinion, what are some of the key moments in the history of voting rights that impact where we are today? Well, in my book, The Voting Rights War, I start in the 1600s and go forward to the present and not just look at the cases, but the people behind the cases, because I think it's so important for us to understand that when you have a name like Shelby County versus Holder, that we know that's Eric Holder, the first U.S. Attorney General of African descent. And so when I look at the 1600s, I look at the 1619 arrival of those 20 Africans into the Virginia colony. Why is that important? Because you had an African family, that African family, Anthony and Mary Johnson, were landholders. They had servants of their own, European and African servants of their own. So they should have been able to have a political voice. Right. But they were denied that. And that then becomes the history of the country. Two steps forward, one step back. We do everything we're supposed to do to have a political voice, to have a vote. And then the laws change to marginalize that political voice. And many times 
you know, subject us to um, being traumatized or sent out of the community or even murdered. And in this case, Mary and Anthony Johnson had their land confiscated and they had to leave the Virginia colony. Think about what difference it would have been if they would have stayed. Think about the life trajectory of African-Americans if they would have been protected under the law to have a voice in their own community. So in this constant push and pull that has gone on for centuries regarding voter suppression, what are some of the key examples of voter suppression that you see most commonly existing today? Today, we see the vestiges or remnants of what they did 150 years ago. And I just say this, but this is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote. But it's also the 150th anniversary of Black men receiving the right to vote with the 15th Amendment. And with that 15th Amendment, we had Black U.S. senators, Black U.S. congressmen. We had Black men in positions of state government. We had all of these people participating politically. No women could vote at this time. So you had white men and Black men in political offices. We don't know anything about that because of the backlash of white militia, Ku Klux Klan, and other type of terrorism, and the law the U.S. Supreme Court and other laws. So by 1890, we have the literacy tests, the poll taxes, the grandfather clause. Why is this important today? Because in Florida, we have um, men and women who have served their time and because of a state law that would prohibit them from voting based on felony disenfranchisement, they lost their right to vote. That right was given back to them by Florida law recently. And what did the conservatives do in the in the legislative body? They turn around and say, oh, if you don't pay your fines, then you can't vote. These men and women have been making 30 cents a day working in, in during their time of incarceration. And now they have to pay these fines in order to get their right to vote back. So that's another modern form of the same poll tax that was started in 1890 that the 24th Amendment was supposed to end in 1964. So you see there are modern versions of the same things that were taking place before. These are the ways in which voter suppression is a a modern day civil death. And that's what they used to call it when the the felony disenfranchisement is a civil death, that you don't have civil rights in your community. But they've been in the making for over 150 years. How much concern or how much do you think voter suppression could impact the upcoming election in November? There will be millions of people who will not have their votes counted or will be um, disenfranchised from casting a vote. And once again, you have those same people with felony convictions who are not able to vote. If you go to the polling place and they say, oh, your name's been purged because you have a felony conviction. How do you prove you don't have a felony conviction? How would one prove they do not have a felony conviction? I want you to think about that. Right, right. How do you prove? Uh, seriously, right, how right. would one prove they do not have a felony conviction? And so they have things like an affidavit ballot or provisional ballots, but normally they're not counted until the very, very, very end. And we know with mail-in ballots and all the confusion around what uh, the White House has caused and confusion around mail-in ballots, that there's going to be enough going on that by the time they get to the provisional ballot or the affidavit ballot, somebody has already been selected as president. 
Those are great examples. Lead me to this question, which I'm sure you hear because I hear it a lot from both black and white people who say, I'm not going to vote. I don't like either candidate. My one vote's not going to make a difference. How do you respond to those people? I have asked other people in voting rights advocacy the same question, and I'll give you just a variety of the responses I've received and what I've used as well. I say that it's not a protest to not vote. It's actually a failure because you've decided to give your vote to someone else. And I also say if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't try to suppress it and take it away from you. Absolutely. The other concern I have is if you don't like the candidate, run for office or say something to the candidates who are in office so they can do a better job. And the voting experience is not supposed to be a religious experience. That's the reason why I wrote the book, The Voting Rights War. And my new book is She Took Justice that speaks to all the Black women who fought to get that right to vote and then continue to fight to make their right as a citizen to vote a reality. So I think about the ancestors, the people who gave their lives and livelihoods for us to have the right to vote. That's another argument that I make. And the last one I make, but not least, of course, is you're not just voting for yourself. You're voting for your community. I mean, we've been put in a very precarious condition that we need to rely on each other. And for, for people to abstain and say, I'm going to sit this one out. Well, brother, sister, you cannot sit this one out. You cannot play two-year-old peekaboo games that you cover your eyes and the world disappears. You are in this world. You are playing a role. And if you don't play a role, then you're going to get played. I love it. I love those arguments. Since this is a podcast that focuses on NFL players, let me ask you this question. What suggestions would you offer to athletes who want to use their platform to impact political change? I am so glad that the athletes are standing up to take a knee. And I am so proud of them because they're young people. I mean, people think of us, oh, they're an athlete and they look like these big, tough guys, but they're, they're, they're in their 20s. Yes. I mean, most of them. And so they're trying to figure out the political landscape as well. And for them to take on a protest of any kind, I know with their contracts, is taking a risk. So I want to say, Gloria J. Brown Marshall is proud of you. And we represent a lot of people who are proud of you and whatever they can do. And if that means taking a knee, if that means raising a fist, if that means saying something in their communities, because not only are people of color looking up to these athletes as role models of sorts, but it is a platform. Who else gets a national stage like that with millions of people watching them on a weekly basis? Mm -hmm. Use that platform the way athletes have used those platforms in the past. And I think of Serena Williams, you know, using that platform to get equal pay for for female tennis players. Mm -hmm. You can use that platforms in ways that will not disrupt your livelihood altogether. And I think um, Colin played his hand well. I think he also paid a very high price mm -hmm. and the first always really pay a high price. But I think there are ways in which the NFL athletes can actually negotiate. If they stand together as a community, their voice can be heard with these owners as you see that happening. So they need to stand up for one another. Don't leave somebody out, you know, in the cold 
and turn your back because who's in the cold today? Well, you'll be in the cold tomorrow. And the other thing I think they could do is in using their voice to protest, to put the names of the people who have been killed, like Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. like George Floyd, where it's a, where it's appropriate and they can, to put those names out there so people don't forget. Because this country has a short attention span. And if you don't remind people of the deaths that are taking place on a regular basis, those that make the media and those that don't, then people will forget and they just want to be entertained. And they need to know that this entertainment comes at a cost and they have to be made uncomfortable. No justice, no peace. And you can't give people the peace of saying you can pretend this country is giving justice when it is not. You've been brilliant, as always, Gloria. I want to end this by opening up the floor to you to talk about any important points you want to leave our listeners with that we may not have covered about politics and also policing as well. Look at it this way. Even in the 1800s, the black vote was enough to change the outcome of an election. They knew that then. That's why they came up with the poll tax and literacy tests and grandfather clauses and all these things. They know we have this political power. And so people need to understand how powerful we are. I'm a very proud African-American. And so many things happen to us that we need to just tell our children to be proud African-Americans. And we don't say that enough. Sometimes we view ourselves through the lens of the people who are trying to make our lives miserable. We need to understand the power we have, the power of our culture, continue to read books about how we fought to get this far. They didn't hand us anything. We fought for this and we've got to continue to fight. And the book I wrote, She Took Justice, The Black Woman, Law and Power. And I wrote She Took Justice and it starts with Queen Nzinga, who was a warrior queen who negotiated a peace treaty with the governor of Portugal in 1622. Black women are the most consistent voters. We have the highest voting rate than any other group, higher than any other group. Black women do. And so when we come together, Black men and Black women in our community, and we make ourselves known and make ourselves strong and protect one another, we can't be held back. This election and every election, not just the the powerful four-year presidential elections, but are we keeping our politicians to the grindstone, holding them accountable, or are we letting them just get in office and then we turn around and say they're just going to do their jobs? They show up again when it's time for re-election. We need to make sure that we keep them on track. What do we want from our politicians? Don't be a cheap political date. (laughs) <laughs> That's what I used to say. Don't, don't be a cheap date politically. Don't give your stuff away. You know what I'm talking about. Don't give your stuff away. <laughs> Demand some things. Get dinner. You know? <laughs> a movie, don't, right? Something, yeah, a right. movie, something. Don't come out of this with nothing at all, with a smile. You know, make sure that you get something for that vote. And make sure after you, you give them that vote, that you show up and see what have you done for my community lately. Gloria, I appreciate your your passion, your work. Uh, I know this has been a, a lifelong journey and 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 fight for you. And you know, I just appreciate people who are so dedicated to what they do. You've brought definitely a, a different and important perspective. Thank you so much. Best of luck to all your endeavors. Know that your work is really appreciated. Well, I stand tall and take a knee with Colin Kaepernick. 
Thanks so much, Gloria. You take care. Thank you. Our next guest is Tori Smith, a former Ravens player who made a vow that he would remain active in the community once he retired. He has delivered on that promise and more. His introduction to legendary Congressman Elijah Cummings, while still an active player, fueled Smith's commitment to making a difference. I know that you had, back in 2013, an internship with Congressman Elijah Cummings, who really was a legend, uh, not only in, in Baltimore, but throughout the country. Can you tell me how that internship affected you and what it taught you about politics and the political system? I mean, that internship was huge. I remember we had just won the Super Bowl. And to be completely honest, I did the internship because it was my second offseason, but the first offseason, you know, it took some adjusting. Like, I was used to always having something to do, like being on a school schedule or being something. I felt like, man, I'm not learning. I'm not doing anything. Okay. And I was like, man, I want to learn what's going on in our society. We're taught to vote. We're taught to, you know, to push our legislators, but what do they really do? So it was an opportunity for me to go there and to learn um, from one of the greatest men that I've had the opportunity to be around and one of the greatest leaders that we've had. Uh, to watch him, the way he led his group, and more importantly, to learn the value of a team. Um, that was really the biggest thing. You know, the politicians are the face, but their team, uh, are the, are, you're only as strong as your team, just like it is in so many other companies or corporations as well. It was pretty cool to see that and, and take phone calls and, and letters from people who were in help and who needed help. And they were able to be a, a voice of reason for people who didn't want to listen to those people and they were able to connect them to resources and really help them. So it really opened my eyes to the capabilities of our legislators that I really, honestly, I didn't even know that before. This sounds like something where you could really make a difference. Like you could feel you're hearing someone's like personal life story and you could actually hopefully do something to help them. I mean, to me, that sounds like it was a pretty moving experience for you. It was, and I'm probably the worst kind of intern because I'm like, I'm bringing everything. Like, no, this is important. This is a priority right here. They're like, man, you know, there's so many things going on. Mm -hmm. And it's a constant reminder of like, man, you, you have, it's a constant battle. You have to constantly do good and help others because even then, there are people that get passed over. You know, you, 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 it's the reality of it. You can't help every single person. And literally watching and seeing how things are facilitated, that hurts. But knowing that there are people that help, well, that's his district, right? The district that I still live in right now, even though I'm in Howard County, it's in the same district as some of the calls we're receiving from Baltimore City as well. Mm -hmm. And so you're able to help that way. But knowing that the next, the next district over, they don't have those same resources, but they have similar problems. Again, it was an eye-opening experience for me. And like I said, I tried to help each and every person I could. I was calling, I was emailing, I was doing whatever I could, trying to figure out how I could help. What do you think's the best way for you to honor his legacy? You know, he used to always give me credit for like being bold, not being shy, speaking up, and not being afraid to do the work. To me, you know, that builds my confidence. So for me, I'm trying to take it to the next level. I want to be very present not only where I reside, but in Baltimore City as well. 
and just try to help any and everyone. Because like I said, that was a man. It didn't care. He didn't care if you were rich. He didn't care if you were poor. Um, he didn't care if you were educated. He didn't care if you weren't. Like he treated everyone the same. And so mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I continue to, you know, help and, and play my part and educate people as well on this process of, of voting and what your leaders can do and challenge them to do more. So for me, I'm just continuing my, my education myself of trying to learn the dynamics of Baltimore City and surrounding areas and where I'm from in Virginia and, and what type of changes need to happen for people's lives to be changed. Like it or not, I'm going to make you my congressman for a year, Tori. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> if you were, what are some things you think you would do or fight for if you were in that position? I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, if, if we're Wherever talking locally, start. let let let's right. talk where Local. we are. Right, let's talk. Let's right. talk to Maryland. Right. You know, the first thing I would do is decriminalize certain things. Um, marijuana would be decriminalized. Uh, we have people who get caught up in the system over marijuana, which there are corporations making millions of dollars off mm-hmm. of it. I would make sure we raise the minimum wage. Again, I use the example. Some people are working 18-hour days to provide for their kids, but the only job that they're qualified for, you know, may be a minimum wage job, and whether that's because of their educational experience or uh, a crime they commit or their record or whatever it may be, that isn't right. <laughs> you know, it, it, they should be able to survive. In America, if you work hard, you're supposed to be successful. That's what we tell people. Mm-hmm. Yet we don't give them the opportunity to even forget, like, trying to live a lavish life to survive. And so to me, I, I think the bare minimum is to try to remove that. And also, you want to talk about businesses and things? I think we could be more friendly towards businesses in Maryland, in my personal opinion, which would could allow more jobs to be here, uh, more jobs to open up in schools. You know, people like to talk about the money in schools. I was actually debating about that on social media uh, recently about the money in schools and all of that. And like, listen, I live in Howard County. Howard County is known for its great public schools. My kids go to public schools. Well, I took them out right now. They're being homeschooled because of COVID. And my kids right. are young. They're not sitting at a computer all day. But they right. will be going to public school. So when you think about public school here, I'm not concerned about a lot of things. They have books. They have internet. They have computers that they have access to. You know, they have counselors. They have help that they can eat. Well, you go to these city schools, some of them don't have heat. Some of them don't have AC. Some of them don't have constant access to computers. Some of them don't have clean bathrooms because the person's coming twice a week. They can only afford to have a janitor to come twice a week. So why can't we have these schools to have these kids have a fair chance? You know, they're falling behind early, and we aren't meeting them where they are to help them prepare for it. So that's why even on a personal note, we're trying to get out in front when it comes to early childhood learning to make sure that the kids have that opportunity because, again, it's about access in a lot of situations. Obviously, we know that police brutality has been a major issue in this country. Can you talk about how you think politics can play a role in attacking that issue? Politics is everything. You know, people like to deny it and say it doesn't matter. But I tell people all the time, you know, black people are only free in America because of policy. Black people, women, are only able to vote because of policy. 
So if you want things to change, it's going to have to go the legislative route because you can't trust the human heart or the human mind <laughs> to be the judge of the jury. Like you, you're going to have to have something that holds them accountable. And in closing, I want you to talk about how you're still connected in any way with, with the Ravens, even though you're not obviously on the field. And I know you're close with Steve Bishotti. So any ways you're connected with the Ravens as far as trying to do things in the community. And also, I just wanted to open the floor to you to talk about anything that's important to you uh, regarding this issue that we may not have touched on regarding racism, social injustice. Because I know you have a podcast of your own, too, where you talk about a lot of these things. Yes, I have a, a podcast called Trending Thoughts, and I literally talk about anything that's trending in my life at the time. <laughs> so that could be this topic. You know, that could be parenting. It could be anything. You know, I like to talk about things that are real that we all can relate to. Um, but when it comes to the Ravens, I know I left. I went to other teams, you know, won another Super Bowl up in Philadelphia. Uh, but Baltimore is different, you know, from the city. Uh, and the organization itself and the way they've treated me over time. And I was very in- involved. You know, the Baltimore Ravens never stopped me from being who I am. I was able to be vocal without having to come back and hear from Coach Harbaugh or Mr. Society about, hey, uh, Tori, you know, you had to tell now what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Or denying me from being in the community every week. I never had to deal with that. In fact, I would say they helped. I was in the community more because of their support. And now that I'm retired, you know, I've been able to be involved with the Ravens and and what they're doing in the community as well um, from the outside, but it's only going to get bigger and better. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. But again, as long as I'm in Baltimore and the Ravens are in Baltimore, which is going to be forever, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'll be here to to help and support because this is an organization that does care about its people. You know, I had the opportunity to help with the the players with the grant and getting involved in the community and the players worked extremely hard to figure out which organization they would donate the million dollars to that was right. uh, gifted by the Baltimore Ravens and uh, the Steve Bishotti Foundation. So for me, I was like, man, it's this huge to be there, to be involved with the players and to help them figure out where things should go. Because now, even though I'm retired and I'm not in that locker room, I'm able to talk to them about things that matter to them. So uh, as much as I'm able to talk, you know, with everyone and the higher ups and be a resource for them, you know, I'm able to talk to the players as well because, you know, they want to help Baltimore become a better place. So I'm actually thankful that they even called on me to help with that. That was a big right. deal. You know, I was able to help bring some smaller organizations um, to their attention and figure out ways that we could, you know, help make the city better. Because I feel like oftentimes uh, big corporations, they go to the big foundations, And I think they were able to learn a lot from that exposure about the smaller organizations that are doing great things right in the city, but they don't have the same type of support. And so it was pretty special to watch that come together, to know that they were able to transform organizations, which in turn will help transform lives in this city. It's pretty special. And like I said, it's only going to get bigger and better. You've cast your vote already, Tori, or are you doing election day? I'm going election day. You know, I like to vote on election day. Also, I'm curious to see if nicer areas uh, have any polling issues. 
So that's my own personal observation that I'm looking for because I tend to see when there are issues with polling, which we see on social media and things like that, it tends to be organization of towns where people of, of color are present and in high numbers mm-hmm. or in lower income communities. So I'm looking forward to seeing if I can just take a brisk on walk into my uh, polling <laughs> location, cast my vote, and come on out. And uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see that. So I will, I will be voting with my wife, um, but I like to do it in person. Tori, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate the work you do and appreciate your honesty and willingness to speak out. So uh, thanks for coming on Black in the NFL. You know, we'll see uh, how this election turns out. Hopefully everybody out there is going to participate in the process. Make sure y'all vote. Appreciate (laughs) you having me. All right, take care. My next guest is All-Pro left tackle Ronnie Stanley, who is the Ravens NFL Players Association representative. He's also on the team's Players Council that decided which organizations would receive a portion of the $1 million donation that the Ravens committed towards the fight on social injustice. Stanley has become increasingly involved with the community during his five seasons with the Ravens, and his belief in the importance of voting has grown. I follow your Twitter closely, really enjoy it, and you once said, a fight against racism isn't a political thing. Could you expand a little on what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of built in, you know, racism is just built into the fabric of our country's history. And, you know, like it or not, that's just, um, you know, our nation is part of our upbringing. And I think people, you know, try to avoid that part of history and try to put it all on uh, politics and try to play that card when it's really a bigger issue than politics. And it's politicians, you know, have their ways of making it about that, but it's, it's bigger than that. Back in July, you also posted on your Twitter feed an essay that the great congressman John Lewis wrote, which was published a few days after his death, which in essence was like his last words to us. And in that essay, he wrote, quote, voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful change agent you can have in a democratic society. Why, I guess, did that essay with Congressman Lewis resonate so much with you? I just think because it just resonated with me, just the importance or rather the lack of importance it's kind of had on the younger generation, you know, my generation, just part of our lives coming up and really realizing the the impact that you can have by voting and going out and voting, the power you have and the amount of things that, that can change in society just by who's being voted in or out. Just understanding that, I think, is is really a a big, big thing for everyone in our country, especially uh, younger people. Right. Now, have you always been a guy who was passionate about voting? No, I I, like in the past, I was never, um, never like a big political guy. I just didn't realize the power I had with the vote I had. And I think people just have to realize, you know, you're voting for more than just a person. You're vote. You're voting for ideology. You're voting for mentality. You're voting for a cultural difference. Have you talked to any or a lot of your teammates about voting? And I guess, do you feel with within your team that guys are feeling the same way that you do? 
as in their political passion has increased over the last few years or not? Yeah, we, we definitely had team talks about uh, what we're talking about now. And I think everyone on, on our team realizes the importance, you know, of voting and the power that, that comes with it. Now, the Ravens recently put out a letter demanding for the Justice and Policing Act, calling for Mitch McConnell to vote for the Justice and Policing Act. He didn't do that. So what's the next step, do you think, if your demands aren't met? Yeah, I think we just got to keep pushing. Like like we like we said, we have to be, you know, forward and explicit of what we want, just like when we asked Senator McConnell to, to bring that to the floor. And obviously he didn't, but doesn't mean we're not going to stop bringing, you know, different things up to him or whoever the case might be. And, you know, we're going to figure that out, you know, as a team, our next steps. But that's definitely something, you know, we're still thinking about and focused on. How do you respond to people who say, Hey man, it's just one vote. You know, I'm just one vote. My my vote doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And then you realize that <laughs> eighty, a hundred thousand people are thinking the same way. And that's 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 where the power lies. Like oh like oh, a bunch of people thinking that their vote doesn't matter, so they don't vote. And, you know, all those people together end up being a you know, could be a big portion of the votes and they just don't realize that they don't realize that that power of of unity unification and you're truly not going to get what the people want unless the people vote can you tell me a little bit about baltimore pump house a project that creates financial sustainability in black communities in baltimore that i know that you've you know had some dealings with yeah so the development company um bought a couple blocks in baltimore and the, the whole point is to create financial stimulus, economic stimulus, and to bring business in. They're trying to provide the groundwork for businesses to thrive, so it's not it's not as hard to to get it off the ground. And they're really trying to like build the framework out. And that's a lot of the things that you know I thought like on the state level are very important. I think they should be more involved in building up the the black communities especially a lot of the older black communities that have been there for a while that have been, you know, disenfranchised for centuries. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's definitely part of the responsibility of the local government to step in and give these parts of the city breaks and uh, you'd rather be tax breaks or incentives to have businesses move in these areas. I think there's a responsibility there for them. Now, in August, the Ravens announced distribution of $1 million in social justice initiatives in Baltimore. You've stated that you're passionate about this project. How are you directly involved with that? So I was just like the Baltimore Pump House. I was out there like looking at different projects and trying to figure out which which ones are really going to create, you know, long-term sustainability and really going to last generational and not just kind of be like a, a program, you know, it's going to be there for like a year or something and not really truly make the difference that, that needs to be changed. And I really... uh really wanted it to be invested in, in places like, like that that are going to start to really change and not just kind of help, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, going through some clips, I saw a picture of you having met Donald Trump in Vegas in 2016, mm-hmm. and the caption you had on Instagram with it was, this dude is crazy. Uh, can you tell me about that meeting, how that took place, and what transpired? Yeah, so I was training for the draft. So this was before uh, 
my rookie year and I was training and I was staying at the Trump hotel while I was training. So, and he came through there and this was before he was like a serious candidate and I right. like, everyone was kind of joking about it, you know, like, Oh, Trump's running for president. Like this is hilarious, you know? So I was like, yeah, might as well take a pick with the guy. I never really thought he'd make it to where he is now, you know, but Guess I was wrong. <laughs> Ronnie, I appreciate your time so much. Appreciate the work that you're doing in the Baltimore community and your points of view. So thanks so much for coming on. All right. Take care now. All right. Thank you. Our final guest is Tracy Odie Blunt, Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications for the National Football League. She's one of the league's highest ranking officials and played a major role in leading this year's NFL Votes campaign. The drive among the league and its players to encourage fans to vote in the upcoming election. A native of Nashville, Tennessee, Tracy comes from a family that has long been involved with politics. And you'll hear about her connection to the Ravens dating back to their first Super Bowl season. Uh, Tracy, I'm so glad you could be a part of this podcast, Black in the NFL. You're the NFL's Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications. Yes. So can you briefly describe your job and why you're so passionate about it? So I am in a position of being able to tell the messages of, of what is happening at the league and the players. And so in my role as corporate communications, I have several portfolios that I oversee, which include player health and safety, includes uh, all of our events, club business development and marketing our social responsibility and community relations, and then working just with NFL media uh, and the network. But I think I'm really excited about uh, the opportunity to talk to you today around NFL votes. And so players across the league had reached out to the commissioner and said they really wanted to focus on uh, the election this year as a, a unified front in the sense that the NFL Players Association, as well as the Players Coalition, all came together to uh, do a nonpartisan uh, education effort to get players, uh, league personnel, and club personnel and staff to register to vote and make sure that they vote on election day. So there were three phases to the campaign. So uh, there was a, a voter education session, which started in July during training camp. And so there are three organizations, Rise to Vote, I Am a Voter, and rock the vote. and know that the, the Ravens are working with Rise to Vote. Uh, the second phase of this campaign it was voter registration. And then the last phase is where we are now uh, is in the activation phase. We all make our voices heard on game day. One, two, three, we all we got. But on election day, only 60% of eligible Americans even showed up to vote. Only 60%? 60%? 60 isn't good enough. We each have a responsibility, an opportunity to be heard. To choose our representation. And it's easy. And it's easy. Visit risetovote.org and register to vote. And register to vote. Let's all be heard this election day. So, you know, early voting has started in many states. Uh, and so between early voting and ensuring that people get out on Election Day uh, to vote uh, is, is what this last push is. So we're making our game plan. 
So far, we've had over 900 players that have uh, registered through the NFL Votes campaign. So most of you know our players and coaches uh, have been involved. You had uh, Russell Wilson, you have Coach Pete Carroll, uh, the Ravens. Uh, they've done their own uh, version of, of the, the 60% campaign, which I can uh, just briefly talk about. But it was Justin Tucker, Calais Campbell, Matthew Judon, so, uh, and Anthony Levine participated in the specific one there. But the 60% campaign, if uh, you go back and you look at uh, the Pew statistics, 60% of eligible voters in the 2016 presidential election did not vote. That is not a good thing. You know, we launched this on the 55th anniversary of the uh, Civil Rights Act. Representative John Lewis has just passed. Earlier uh, in the year, we lost Congressman Elijah Cummings. And so these figures fought the good fight for us to have that opportunity to vote. And when you hear that people don't think that their vote counts or they don't, you know, just take those few hours to go out there and make a difference. If you, if you don't vote, you're not heard. Have you noticed over the past year, you've mentioned some of the things that happened. We all know some of the tragedies with George Floyd and my mm-hmm. Arbery, mm-hmm. Have you noticed players as a whole becoming more politically awakened this year? I'm not suggesting that they weren't before, but I'm just curious mm-hmm. about the impact you've seen dealing with players this year. Have you seen an increased awareness of how much they feel the need and the desire to get involved? Even more so, um, like you said, players have been a leading uh, voice uh, in in the fight for social justice for many years. You know, this season, I, I'll start with with where we were with COVID. I mean, what we saw. So we have a couple pandemics, right? So you've got the health pandemic, and then from there, you saw the disparity between Black and Brown communities and and mainstream communities in access to healthcare. And so early uh, in in March, uh, the Players Coalition, which was founded and led by uh, Anquan Bolden. Malcolm Jenkins, they came together and looked at the funding that they had remaining and donated over $2 million in direct funds in six markets, including Baltimore, specifically to infuse money into hospitals, into, you know, centers that they know where, you know, it's going to help people uh, with medicine and, and get food. So that that was one area where, you know, you really saw uh, players coming together. And then with with all of the social unrest uh, that has, you know, taken place from, from everything that, you know, many in the Black community uh, have seen and known and has gone on for a long time. But for all of us to be put on the same playing field and, and, and level in the sense that we were all at home. It's not like we could get out and go to the grocery store after right. we watched something on the news. Mm-hmm. We all watched George Floyd get murdered on television. Then there was nothing that anybody could could do. And so with that, I think that really galvanized the players, the league, I mean, just people in general, like there's a humanity factor here and I, it, it brought everybody together. And so the conversations that were being had that, you know, may not have been had before were really happening. And I think that that has, has brought everybody closer together and to really focus on, on the issue of social justice and what needs to be addressed there. Now, when you're talking to players, I know that We all know that when players begin to speak out, they're always going to receive criticism from some Mm -hmm. who believe that they shouldn't be doing this, that they're stepping outside their box or whatever. They just don't want to hear it. When you're talking to players who are trying to decide, well, do I really want to plunge further into activism or politics? 
What do you say to them? We're all from communities, right? Their job is, is, is playing football, but they still have families. They still have communities where they grew up. They're, you know, they're friends and families that are still there. And so when we see injustices, you can't help but want to go back and, and, and make a difference in your community. So, you know, you're right. People are going to going to say, you know, you know, just play ball and, and don't do anything. But we're all human. And I, that's where I go back to to, you know, the, the tragedy with George Floyd. It really put everybody on notice that, you know, wasn't aware before. And I and I do that with air quotes. So, you know, that that being said, I think players, they have a platform to make a difference in their communities. I think the NFL provides a, a, a platform for players, coaches, personnel, and everybody to speak out because we bring community together. Uh, and we do that through sports. And so the humanity factor and, and the fact that this whole summer has has put everybody on notice is something that, you know, the players are, are speaking out and they are they are making a difference. Since we're, you know, in the, the height of the election season, if you have the opportunity to vote and you have your game plan, get out and vote. And it is not just because it is a presidential election. All of the issues that we've been seeing since, you know, we were all on lockdown uh, with COVID starting in March, these issues can be impacted at the local level. So it is important just from a voting standpoint that you go all the way down the ticket and you make yourself aware of the issues because some of the things that are happening are determined by the state legislature or the city council or the school board or the attorney general. So it is important to understand the issues, but really to to exercise your right to vote because if there are things that you don't like, then you can make that change by voting on the 3rd of November. And so I think uh, it is critical. Um, it is it is a civic duty. And if you don't speak, you're not heard and you can't complain. <laughs> Excellent. Now, before you came to NFL, you were a highly successful president of the Urban Movie Channel. Mm -hmm. From an outsider looking in, you know, you didn't need to make a, a career switch. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what intrigued you about coming to work for the NFL? And if being a black woman, did you feel more compelled to take on this kind of role? I had an opportunity to interview with the NFL and I knew that communications was my passion. I said, if I do nothing else, if I get this position, I want to make a difference. And this is my dream job. And so I think what I am excited about and honored about is to have the opportunity to work on the social justice platform. I'm from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, grew up in North Nashville. I remember used to tell my dad, I was like, you know, we don't have to stay in the community. You can move. And he was like, nope, staying right here. And best thing we did was never move. Right. Our family was part of that business community there. And, you know, when people had the opportunity to leave, you know, some get left behind, communities uh, fall apart. But now, you know, he's there and, and we go back in and we're trying to rebuild. So it's really, really important that, um, you know, community and, and what we do and giving back is important. All right. Now, you mentioned being from Nashville. Uh, mm -hmm. I know in 1960, there was a famous sit in there at a lunch counter mm -hmm. with students that led to the desegregation of some restaurants there in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And I also, I believe your family was somehow has a connection to that sit-in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. Tell me about that, please. Uh, when I moved to, to D.C., I worked in the Senate for the senator who replaced Al Gore uh, when he became vice president. 
when the term was up, I interviewed on the House side and I went to interview in Congressman John Lewis's office. And I remember the chief of staff saying to me, I don't understand why he wants to see you because he usually doesn't see a person the first time, you know, they come in on a preliminary interview, but the congressman for some reason would like to see you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I walk into his office and he's got my resume and he says, Odie, I mean, that's my, my maiden name. And I said, yes. He said, you from Nashville? I said, yes. And he said, 1963. And he literally started telling me the story about the sit-in. So they were either at Woolworths or the Woolworth counter on fifth. Mm -hmm. And he said that they got arrested and my family, they bailed them out of jail. They clothed them. They, you know, fed them and sent them, you know, back to school and, and back, you know, back on the bus. I think they were doing one of their freedom rides at the time. And to hear that and not know that from my family. So I remember calling my, my grandfather and I said, granddaddy, you know, I've just met John Lewis today and you didn't tell me about this. And he was like, oh, you know, there was nothing to tell. That's just what you did. Oh, my goodness. That's yeah, crazy. it was a, it was a moment. <laughs> he never, your grandfather never told you about that before. Huh? Yeah, because to him, he was just doing what we do. We take care of each other. You, you know, someone needs help. You know, you, you, you help them. And so we, we had a grocery store and, and you know, family business. Our store was right across the street from Fisk University, and and so you know, Marion Barry was there. Uh, John Lewis was there. So you had it was a pretty significant historic piece of Nashville that's part of the civil rights movement. And and excited and proud that my family was part that right now we've seen players kneeling we've seen the protests having mm -hmm. going on all over the country we've heard commissioner goodell say black lives matter mm -hmm. but so many people ask the question what's next uh what's next for not only the nfl but you know the social movement in general so mm -hmm. over the next four or five years in what ways would you like to see the nfl participate in some of these projects that attack racism and social injustice well, so the, the good thing is the work is, is being done now. And so I think what we've really got to, to, to harness and focus on is the action. So, you know, the kneeling is the demonstration and we're bringing awareness to the, to the issue. Uh, and so with the events of the summer, everybody is now aware of the issue. And so the next step is putting action behind the words. And so what I will say is the league, we've got an initiative called Inspire Change, and we're, we're having conversations internally. These are social justice issues. So let's call it what it is and make sure that, that we are focused on this, you know, year round, not just during certain times of the year. And so there are four pillars under that uh, social justice initiative and it's education, it's economic advancement, it's community police relations and criminal justice reform. And so in those four pillars, the work that the players, and this is also player led, but the work that the players are doing in communities and, uh, you know, with national grant partners and local grantees, um, how to amplify that work and then be able to show what impact that that's had on the child that got the meal, be it the community that's got a better relationship with their their local police force. So that's that's the phase that we're in. So I'm hoping that over the next two to three years that you'll start seeing that impact because I've seen and, and know that a lot of work has been doing, but it, it doesn't seem to have translated beyond uh, some local communities. So we're really focusing on the action and making sure that the end user is, that's the story that's being promoted. As much as, you know, individual involvement will make a difference, how important do you think it is for the NFL 
as we try and move forward to have its players, the Players Association, the owners, the league, working in concert and having open dialogue, trying to push things forward. Uh, Not that everyone can always agree on the best Mm -hmm. ways, but just to have that dialogue, how important will that be in the process of having the NFL and its players make a difference in social issues? Well, the good thing is that's already happening. And so everything um, that, I mean, around our NFL Votes campaign, Inspire Change, uh, the work that uh, is being done with our Workplace Diversity Committee, we've got a a seven-point you know, plan where we're focusing on increasing the coaching ranks uh, with African-Americans. And so that dialogue is happening. The ownership group, very, very active. We're talking with the PA, we're talking with the Players Coalition. So we're all talking together and we're working in concert. And so the successes that we are having is because uh, the relationship um, has been has been very positive at this time. Yeah, Tracy, I know you work for the league now, but understand you have kind of a long connection with the Ravens and, you know, kind of following them. Can you talk about uh, that for me, please? I can. Uh, I had a friend that played for uh, the Ravens. Uh, he was on the Super Bowl winning team, a gentleman named uh, Corey Harris. He would uh, leave tickets for me. And so I would, uh, my first time I, I went to the game was at Memorial Stadium uh, before they were building the Raven Stadium. And ironically, my husband and, and father-in-law's business, their general contractors, were part of the joint venture that built M&T Stadium. So there's that connection there as well. So once the stadium was built and I would come to the games um, and sometimes I would come by myself. So I would just park the car and walk over to the stadium, watch the games and and enjoy. So I've I've had a connection there for for quite some time. (laughs) Interesting. Well, Tracy, again, I want to thank you for participating in Black in the NFL. Thanks for your efforts. And uh, I look forward to, to talking to you down the road. But but thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Take care. In this episode of Black in the NFL, we've heard from two men and two women, all highly successful. In episode one, we heard from a 39-year-old white former Army Green Beret who grew up in California and a 77-year-old black social activist who grew up in East St. Louis. In episode two, we heard from one Raven who grew up in Detroit and another who grew up outside of Denver. What did they all have in common? The right to vote, a concern for this country, and a belief that the political process can make a difference. As much as I love sports, it has become very hard for me to understand people who will cheer themselves hoarse, rooting for their favorite team, but who won't speak up by casting a vote on election day. I can't speak for you, but I'm afraid that I'm probably in the fourth quarter of my life. I simply can't afford to sit on the sidelines during the political process. And for what I've seen in 2020, no matter what your age, I don't think you can afford to sit it out either. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black in the NFL. And please join us for episode four, where we'll discuss police brutality. One of our guests will be Ravens running back Mark Ingram II. Black in the NFL is powered by Blue Wire. 
This show is produced and edited by Noah Eberhardt and executive produced by Michelle Andres, Ryan Mink, John Yales, and Peter Moses. Tune into the Ravens Podcast Network for two other podcasts, The Lounge, hosted by Garrett Downing and Ryan Mink, and What Happened to That Guy, hosted by John Eisenberg. Thanks for listening, and be blessed until next time.